Okay, okay. So let's just get it started because I'm really excited for this episode. So I'm doing a little bit of an update. So of course, we're waiting on the Mass Casualty Commission. Well, kind of not waiting on it, but, you know, casually watching it. And as it carries on, we continue to get sporadic updates out of what are those horse boys up to the Gabriel Wartman case episode. So Chelsea, I just need to check. Would you say that we put the casual in mass casualty? Yeah, I'd say that. Except that I wouldn't really want to put anything into mass casualty. Okay. (laughs) But yeah, we could go with that. We're pretty casual. First up, actually, I think this is the only one up, so... Let's just talk about the RCMP officers that visited Wartman's house 16 times in Portapique, Nova Scotia in 2010, 2011, and 2013 before the 2020 mass shooting. And they had concluded that there was never enough evidence to investigate the man. I don't know about you, but I didn't hear about this anywhere. I heard a few things coming and going on the news, but not this. There's been a local Kelowna website that's been pretty good at keeping everybody up to date on uh, what's going on in the commission. I've quite liked it. Yeah. That's nice. And you have to kind of be actively looking for it, but I've never heard this like out in the open. Obviously, in this public inquiry, they're looking for what contact police had with the gunman, if you remember back from the episode we did, which is looking like a lot, a lot. And the visits were on account of the multiple complaints from people, which I will get to the complaint soon. Don't worry, I won't leave you hanging. Constable Greg Wiley said he had developed a rapport with the man, being Wartman, beginning around 2008 and saw him in 2017 and was asked to follow up at at least one of the complaints made against Wartman. He says, quote, We get a gazillion threat complaints, everybody and their dogs phoning in. Wiley told RCMP investigators six days after the shooting, according to the transcript released by the inquiry. Doing the checkups, it's it's not realistic. I don't think the force dropped the ball on this. First complaint was from an uncle who reported Wartman had made death threats against his parents who lived in New Brunswick. Cordell Poirier, a retired Halifax regional police officer of 35 years, first heard the gunman's name early on June 2, 2010, when the RCMP officer from Moncton, New Brunswick, called to tell him about the threat complaints. The Mountie said Paul Wartman, the gunman's father, had gotten a call from his brother Glenn Wartman in Edmonton. Glenn Wartman said Gabriel Wartman had called him while upset about a family land deal and he was threatening to go to Moncton and kill his parents. Poirier recalled in an interview with the commission. The RCMP officer also told Poirier he learned from Paul Wartman that his son was a bad alcoholic and had possession of several long-barreled weapons. Poirier and another officer went around 3.30 a.m. to the Portland Street address in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, where Gabriel Wartman lived and had his denturist office. They spoke to his partner, Lisa Banfield, at the door, who said he had passed out drunk a few hours earlier. She told them that there were no weapons in the house. Poirier said in his initial report that he would not confirm or deny the threat Wartman made about his parents. Although Poirier said he needed to speak with him in person and left his card, he did not hear anything. He followed up the next regular day shift on June 7th and went to the Portland Street home again, but no one answered the door. 
As he was heading back to his cruiser, Poirier said he got a call from Mortman who said he was calling from Banfield's own in Portapique. He wouldn't admit or deny making the threat about his parents and said he would be away for the next month at the Portapique College and a trip to New England, Poirier told the commission. When Poirier said he still wanted to eventually meet in person, Wartman became confrontational and said the only weapons that he had in the house was a pellet gun and two antique muskets, both non-functional. That conversation ended with him saying, look, if you're going to charge me, charge me, and he hung up, Poirier said. He also said he tried multiple times to speak directly with the uncle, Glenn Wartman, but he always got an answering machine and his calls were never returned. Poirier then did speak with Paul Wartman. The father was convinced the gunman, who had no firearms license, had several serious weapons, including pistols and long barrel guns, hadn't seen them himself in more than five years. Given that time gap, Poirier noted his report that without recent knowledge of a public safety warrant could not be obtained. He also told Paul Wartman the threat file couldn't go anywhere unless he got some cooperation from the uncle. Soon after his call with Gabriel Wartman, Poirier said he spoke with Wiley over the phone about the firearms complaint. Wiley told me that he was a good friend of the man's, according to Poirier, and would try to go out to find if he indeed had weapons in his cottage. He never heard back from Wiley, Poirier said, so he closed the file on his end since there was no grounds to follow up or lay a threat charge. I was hoping that with the information I'd given the RCMP that they would be able to find something out on their employee, told the commission. Wiley had been aware of Wartman's family dispute from previous visits to his Portapique College while on patrol in the area. However, his recollection differs from Poirier's accounts in his interview with RCMP on April 25, 2020. Wiley said he didn't recall hearing directly from another officer about the specific firearms complaint, only an email. He went to see the suspect regardless. And so even after the email came out, I had went in and he was fine with me 100%. So I don't know whether there was an element of caution by police or anything like that in the email. I can't remember, but I thought he isn't a threat to me, Wiley said in the interview. Wiley also said he saw no evidence of firearms any of the approximately 16 times he was there over the years. 16 times. He had developed a professional relationship with the gunman years earlier, describing him as polite and welcoming after responding to a break-in at his garage where tools were stolen. Wiley said once most of the tools were recovered and the case was closed, he checked in with the man frequently. They could settle that file. Yeah, no kidding. The case of the mass murderer's missing tools. Yeah, Easy peasy. close, but we kept going back to check in on him. I knew the value of having a few people in the community that you go to, and ironically, this is the irony of it. I was going to a guy, him of all guys, and asking, um, is there anything we should know about or anyone? Anyone that should be on our radar? And isn't it ironic how things have turned out, said Wiley. Wiley said he didn't see any weapons in the cottage. There was another instance, which was a tip circulated by town police in Truro, Nova Scotia, that Warman wanted to kill a cop. The next time Poirier saw the gunman's name was in a report May 3rd, 2011 from Corporal Greg Dunsmore of the Truro Police Service Densmore said an unknown man had approached him while on duty and said Wartman stated he wants to kill the cop. According to Densmore's reports, the source said Wartman had at least one handgun he'd taken between Dartmouth and Portapique, plus several long rifles located at his college that may be stored in a compartment located behind the flue. 
The report was also issued as an officer safety bulletin to all police agencies in the province on May 4th. All police agencies. Like I said, police had been told Wartman was under a lot of stress and has mental issues. Use extreme caution when dealing with Wartman, the bulletin said. Yet the other guy just was using him as some a contact in the community. Like, of course, when I saw that one, the first thing I noticed was the name and, you know, ding-dong. I said, I remember him, Poirier told the commission. Poirier called Densmore to fill him in on the 2010 threat file, and Densmore shared that the source told him Wartman stored his handgun in his bedside nightstand. At this time, Poirier said he called the Bible Hill detachment again and spoke with Wiley, filling him in about the true report and told him that an RCMP member should be sent to speak with Wartman. He didn't speak with Wiley again until July 17th, Poirier said, and Wiley still hadn't spoken with Wartman. Poirier said he said he found it strange. The RCMP officer still hadn't met with the men well over a month after getting the report. Poirier also spoke with active supervisor constable John McMinn at Bible Hill RCMP and told him about the Densmore report. McMinn said he'd review Wiley's file 2010 threat to determine what action, if any, was taken last year and get back to Poirier within the day. But Poirier said that it never happened. So from his perspective, that was it and he left the case with the RCMP. I wasn't going to continually call back saying what's going on. They're handling it. So whatever they did, they did. Poirier said, that was the last time he heard of the gunman until that horrible day when I heard his name after the 2020 mass shooting. In the interview with police, Wiley said he didn't remember seeing the Densmore Bulletin with details about Wartman wanting to kill a cop or any conversation with McMahon. According to commission documents, Densmore couldn't find out any more details about the unknown source who tipped him off on his notes, and when he tried to check the original Truro Police incident report, the files have been purged from the system. There is one more, at least, involved a neighbor who reported to police concerns about his behavior as well. That's number three. A former neighbor of Wartman's, Brenda Forbes, said she told police in the summer of 2013 that she'd heard he had held down and beaten Banfield behind one of the properties he owned in Portapique. Forbes also told police he had illegal weapons, which she had seen herself in 2007 or 2008. She doesn't remember. She said she spoke to Glenn Wartman, who said he witnessed the violent incident. Forbes said she spoke to two RCMP officers, but the uncle refused to talk with the police because he worried his nephew would kill him. The officer told Forbes they had no proof the gunman had any weapons, she recalled, but they would keep an eye on him. Constable Troy Maxwell, the RCMP officer who took her July 6, 2013, complaint proved the commission with one page of his notes. According to the RCMP internal review of their records of Forbes complaint, Maxwell remembers it was about concerns Wartman was acting aggressively in the neighborhood. The review found no indication in the records that it involved domestic violence. Maxwell went to the Portapique cottage twice with two different colleagues with negative results and there are no more details on the complaint. President of the National Police Federate, Brian Sove, who represents RCMP members below the rank of inspector, said there was insufficient evidence to allow RCMP officers to secure a warrant to search for firearms at Wartman's residence when police were informed of his weapons in 2010 and 2011. And based on the information presented by the inquiry about Wartman's firearms, Sove said it is clear that our members followed the law and their training and were not able able to take further steps to investigate without more reliable evidence. There you have it. 
until our next update, there are multiple police complaints made about Wortman who checked out. And hey, they got him his tools back, so yeah, police doing their jobs. They did do their jobs, you know, slightly unsettled by all of this, that they were like, yeah, this guy had a mass shooting. We investigated him three times and he checked out. Seemed like a good guy. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like a completely good guy. We formed a relationship with him and checked in with him all the time and he was fine. It may in fact bother me more, more than it should maybe. How... Openly, like, the cops identify with this guy and think he's a great guy. He did. And I don't know if they're using it as maybe, like, you know, like, we were really there. We did our due diligence in checking it out. And, like, to me, they didn't because, like, obviously, these were all things they should have been checking in a little bit more to. Do you think they're using that as a, like, yeah, we knew him. He was good. He was fine. Like, this is just a freak accident is how I'm taking them to be representing it. I don't know. Just on a purely anecdotal view, which pretty much everything we do is i find cops are way too willing to make friends with and understand people coming from an extreme right-wing violence point of view true do you think it's de-escalation or just like interest no they just <laughs> identify with where they're coming from a lot more maybe a little bit too risque to say in this episode i'll probably end up editing this out there's a reason the cops stay shut down left-wing protests like Black Lives Matter within minutes of them starting, and then somehow, like, the trucker rally was able to gain footing for weeks on end. Okay, I get, what you're, I get where you're coming from. I would have never thought of it that way, but you think, like, way more better sometimes. <laughs> Thank but you, I'll tell people point. that now. Yeah, that's a good point. I really like that point that you made. Thank you for keeping it casual, as we are now doing, for uh, we have to keep up with our puns. And yeah. let's let's get into this episode now for I'm excited. Yeah, we're going to see where this goes. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on our journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where we join this week's episode already in progress. Speaking of David Wilcock loving to talk about himself, I think this is a great point now to go into David Wilcock's personal biography that he has written on Divine Cosmos. I was hoping you'd do that. Yeah, you guys are in for a treat. That's how I would describe it as well. Ever since age two, David remembers having dreams of massive metallic cylinders floating in the sky along with bizarre psychic synchronicities during the day. Oh my fucking At age five, David had spontaneous out-of-body experience that greatly crystallized his quest for the truth of ESP, metaphysics, and consciousness. What the fuck At does that even seven, mean? <laughs> crystallize? <laughs> crystallize? No, he talks about crystals a lot. So that makes sense. <laughs> That's not a noun to crystallize something, is it? Oh yeah, something crystallized in time. Okay. Just okay. kind of like I've never heard and, it put yeah. like that. Okay. okay. I've never heard it put like that. Okay. Just to basically make something stand still. Now that you say it lines. that way, it makes sense, but I've literally never That heard idea in my mind has now crystallized is also something you can say. Something Okay, that one that. sounds more normal than what he said. At age seven, David read his first full-length adult paperback book about ESP, entitled How to Make ESP Work for You by Daryl Sherman. He conducted successful telepathic experiments with his friends and demonstrated repeated psychic accuracy while still in second grade, culminating in a classroom demonstration of his abilities. Oh, God. Oh, and, and then we get on the tough times. 
David's parents divorced when he was 11 years old, and he quickly began gaining weight through emotional eating, trying to stuff his pain with food. Again, he wrote this entire thing. <laughs> As he got larger, he started wearing black t-shirts to try to hide the weight and became increasingly socially isolated. He reached his heaviest and most depressed point at age 50. <laughs> Again, this is his biography. He started it too, and he's going the whole way. This is how much he loves to talk about himself. Yes. At age 16, David committed to a weight loss plan and soon had the first of an ongoing series of lucid dreams, consciously induced through a technique he learned in Dr. Stephen LeBurge's book, Lucid Dreaming. He lost 85 pounds by strict dieting during this year of his life going from 225 down to 140. Perhaps 20 or so of those pounds were in his hair alone. You gotta admit, he cleans up good. What? <laughs> he then follows up with a photo. <laughs> I did see the photo. A before and after. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, probably on the socials too. David's grades also improved along with his self-esteem as a result of losing so much weight. The day he cut his hair, people were stopping dead in their tracks when they saw him in the hallways. He missed an opportunity. What's that? Sleeping on books. Oh, fuck. Yeah, that doesn't come up once. <laughs> what an idiot. No, he, he always <laughs> brags about how many books he reads. <laughs> what an idiot. His transformation so impressed the faculty of Scotia Glenville High School that David was awarded the Martin J. Mahoney Memorial Award for Personal and Academic Progress. He actually bragged about an award he got in middle school. Yeah, I got nothing. I have none, so I can't jump on the band. And it's again. like, he got the most improved reward. Like, that's not something necessarily to brag about. That doesn't mean you were great. It just means you were better than you were before. It's no Edgar Casey. No. no. He was healing tailbone he got tailbone figured out with those ice packs <laughs> it was well on his way by this point he was just most <laughs> and he only had a grade five education <laughs> yes. a little higher than grade five i know but just a bit is right <laughs> and this is my favorite part because he focused on this so much i could not find the video but he talked about this a ton uh back in the day at age 19 after one bleary-eyed year of college partying david went totally sober and began a detailed journal of all his dreams on a daily basis he has an unbroken record of dreams that continues to this day some 14 years later currently david averages 80 to 100 pages of private journal and writings every 15 days between documenting dreams important emails and his life daily events David considers meditative journaling and dream work to be essential to spiritual growth. He's documenting his emails. Yeah. I can't even imagine if I had a notebook and I was not only writing all my dreams, I mean, not to break, but I have some pretty good dreams, along with my emails and like other things in my day. Like, it actually does surprise me how much shit this guy does get done in a day. Because, like, he posts blog posts almost daily on uh, Divine Cosmos back in the day. Well, this was his job. And they were long. I know. For some reason. But at least he was committed to it. I know. And I'm just thinking, like, how compelling would my dreams and my emails be? Probably not very. <laughs> be a wild ride, though. It sure would be. I should be. do it. I should do it. And that's the point. Do you remember back in his old videos how we talked about how he was a raging alcoholic? And yes. he actually considers he himself that. a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. He says it's a bleary-eyed year of college partying. Back in his videos, he described it as like a month. And I'm actually pretty sure it was like a weekend of over drinking. And he's like, no, I don't like alcohol. 
But yeah. no, that's not how he describes it. He's a recovering alcoholic. Yeah, I actually get that from him. I don't look at him and I was like, yeah, I would like to like party with him. No. 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 Yeah, I don't even want I to don't have get a conversation that. with guy. Like he no, doesn't. I wouldn't. No. no. He doesn't he, give you that he's a guy I want to have a beer with. Vibe. He does Which give to me be the fair, vibe he of, doesn't drink. So Yeah. He does give me the vibe of like I had a like few too many drinks one weekend and I felt bad the next day and that was it. And now I'm And I was an alcoholic, alcoholic and now I'm cured. Well it's an it's just another thing that adds to his Narcissism, yes. Narcissism for some reason. I don't even know how you add that to your narcissism. Like I could tell you a million stories like that, but yeah. here I am having a glass of wine. So And I'm out of alcohol and I still have to talk about this guy. We're gonna have to take a break soon. I was just gonna say, do you wanna go take a break? I gotta finish. There is a good break coming up, I think, in a bit. Okay. I love he now upsells himself. David later graduated from State University of New York at New Paltz with a BA in psychology and a master's equivalent in experience from his internship at a suicide hotline, completing his formal education at age 22. Shut up. He worked for that suicide hotline for less than a year. And he says that it's a master's equivalent. What the f- I've never heard this. And also, something really important here, it's gonna come up in a bit. He has a degree in psychology, which is a Bachelor of Arts degree. It's not a science degree. Yeah. This guy fancies himself a scientist. Yeah. But he does not have a science degree. Okay, so he has a master's degree. But it does continue. It's not just because of the suicide hotline work. David's quote-unquote graduate studies with higher intelligence had already begun at age 20 by fully reading and absorbing an average of three metaphysical books per week. He integrated over 300 metaphysical titles between 1993 and 1995. David's internet research began in 1996 and soon replaced books as the predominant medium of study though internet writing is often lower in quality than published books. It also <laughs> contains much that cannot be found in libraries and bookstores, and search functions are irreplaceable. I really love, he's like, yeah, it's not as great, but there's more. And they're not writing the same stuff in books, which well, probably it's means funny, it's not true. It's funny that he's saying search functions are ir search functions are irreplaceable because we're trying to search this and he doesn't come up fucking anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> he does not have a Wikipedia page, guys. Just so we're on the same page. Does not have a Wikipedia page. Bizarre. Bizarre. Just coming from what we do. There's a lot to unload in what you just said. And there's a million things I could have a master's degree in right now. We have master's degrees in Journey to the Fringe and whatever topic we generalize this under, going by that logic. Yeah, we got our master's in life a couple years ago now. Yeah. Life and life sciences. Yeah. But I love that he put it in quotation marks, graduate studies. Oh, like this is mind blowing, all of this. This is his biography, right? We're still on that. Just so we, we're all on the same page too. I should have said this at the beginning. I am reading this unedited because I want you guys to see this guy's mind. From his biography, right? Yeah. Okay, we're still there. Okay. Oh, we're not even halfway through. <laughs> this is good stuff. And he's giving it all to us for free. We now have nine feet worth of books from printed website articles, which David organized with a binding machine. 
This massive archive has spawned all three Convergence books published freely on his site, with book three, Divine Cosmos, being the most sophisticated in content and in writing style. Hence the new name of the website. This archive also spawned part three of the reincarnation of Ed Casey and for a trilogy of Convergence films, and we're still only using a small portion of what we've uncovered. Though we do feel it is the best portion, the most inspiring and scientifically sound. Wilcox preliminary direct contact with higher intelligence was through a quick burst of automatic writing which occurred at 22 in november of 95 quick burst okay a very small number of characters gave a bible citation that was highly synchronistic and meaningful to david at that time even though he had never studied the bible <laughs> i don't know why he decided that those numbers meant the bible either and if he'd never studied the Bible, he literally just said, oh, that's meaningful to me because he found random numbers and that saw that. And he's like, oh, it's meaningful to me. Okay. You know, it could have been his next speeding ticket amount yep. that he'd have to pay. <laughs> ticket. Sorry, ticket, not speeding ticket. The... I'm going to skip this next bit. It doesn't make any difference. The automatic writing experience paved the way for David to begin reading the raw material. Law of One series in January of 96, channeled by LL Research based in Louisville, Kentucky since 1983. The Law of One integrated and explained all 300 books worth of David's metaphysical research and his three years worth of esoteric dream research so well that he felt as if it had been written for him. It also seemed to clearly be implying that a major change, literally a dimensional shift, was coming to the Earth in the not-too-distant future. David was dazzled to discover that no one had ever written a book about the science of the Law of One series before, and he began writing some articles on Richard Hope discussion boards in the summer of 96. And this is where he starts to get in that involvement. In November of 96, at 23, David broke through the direct verbal contact with his own higher self, thanks to the tuning provided by the Law of One study and the ongoing daily teamwork. This proved to be the most important single event of David's entire life, and it utterly changed everything. Taking all the outside studies and suddenly making them intensely personal. The source showed that it was outside of time and it could accurately predict events before they happened with great precision. And it was also a fount of unending wisdom. Fount of unending <laughs> wisdom regarding of how David could further grow spiritually. He had a lot more work to be done in releasing fear, increasing responsibility, developing his scientific models, etc. In September of 97, David was told in a consciously induced out-of-body experience to move to Virginia Beach. Virginia. As soon as David arrived in Virginia Beach, many A.R.E. No idea what that is. Didn't define it at all. By the way, he said O.B.E., but didn't define it. Luckily, I know I think that means out-of-body experience. It might. It could be mean something yeah, totally it could different just be if he obes. didn't define Maybe it. Maybe he had an he induced an obe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And who the fuck knows what that is. So fine. Yeah. As soon as David arrived in Virginia, many are people recognized him. It's a spinning image of young Edgar Casey. Then in November of 97, and again, he said the important date was 98, but he moved there in 97. Like, what an idiot. He could have even done that. Like, that was all within his control. Yeah. After considerable speculation from self and others, David confronted his source directly about the possibility of being Edgar Casey in a past life. The source said that in short, the answer is yes. And with his knowledge comes great responsibility. 
<laughs> Other than the start of the channeling itself, this was by far the greatest surprise of David's entire life. It was extremely difficult for him to accept this, but the readings insisted that he talk about it with others and spread the word. Can you imagine after he, like, takes us down from his higher self and he's like, No! And, like... I don't want to do it. And they say, no, you have to be an ass. Everybody needs to see you. <laughs> Everyone needs to know this. Why? <laughs> I, I'm definitely picturing like a Tommy Wazaw level of like tantrum. Yes, like bad About acting. finding out that <laughs> his girlfriend's cheating on him with his best friend. <laughs> why, Lisa? Why? Why? That is so perfect for this level of ego, I think. If there is ever a David Wilcock biopic, Tommy Wiseau has to play him. I love it's it. Perfect. I don't know that he would do it though. No, no, he's Dude. sitting on all that room money now. I know, but not only that, but like, he lends himself to the craft and like, I don't know that David Wilcock is worthy. <laughs> But I get where you're coming from. Like, he would be perfect to play David Wilcox. He has I the think. perfect level of charisma he, for this. He does. That is exactly it. Yes. Oh, that would be perfect cast. It was extremely difficult for him to accept this, but the readings insisted that he talk about it with others and spread the word. They also insisted that he either begin doing readings professionally and publish books for free online, or he would completely lose his ability. Oh, also, something I didn't talk about up until this point, but he does readings for people this entire time, from like 96 to the mid-early 2000s. What kind of readings? Dream readings mostly, but like he would also like do the oh, psychic fuck stuff. Oh easy, anybody could do that. And no, Are you serious? Yeah, he charged people for it. He charged people. Okay, but going back to that, going back to Edgar Casey, I know you're coming fresh off of this one. You might need to go back to the first Edgar Casey. But how many people are hypnotizing people, asking them what's wrong with that guy? Maybe, no, I can't, I can't even give an excuse for what he's doing. He shouldn't be giving readings of any sort. I can't believe this, though. I swear to God, I can give him a run for his money. If I got a hypnotist to do that, ask me, I'll tell him something. Here I go. If you're gonna say you're Edgar Casey, just leave the money making on the cruise ships. Don't do the fucking readings. That's like the entire thing about Casey. He's like, no, nah, I'm not gonna make money off this. Oh yeah, good point. I feel like it's my life being now to to challenge David Wilcock on this and be like, no, I'm Edgar Casey. Just keep your Benjamins on the cruise ships, man. It's not that hard, I don't think. There's You've got cruise money. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on how many people he got. I got it, I got it, okay. I'm gonna get a hypnotist. They're gonna ask me, I'll pay them money. Don't tell anyone though, I'll pay them money. And ask them to be like, hey, what's wrong with that guy? Or what's wrong with me? And they'll be like, holy shit. Tailbone. Got it. Fucking <laughs> do it. She healed my tailbone. It's now tailbones. And I'll be like, nah. I can't continue to do this for people because- <laughs> Edgar said I have to for money. Yeah. No, no, Edgar didn't say I have to. I'm Edgar and I'm saying no, like I have too many moral obligations to actually be giving readings. 
then on the down low, someone will ask me about my experiences as Edgar Casey, and then they'll sneak out an autobiography unofficially. And I'm I'm the real Edgar Casey, and then I'll be like, no, I don't want anyone to talk about that because I'm the real yeah. Edgar Casey. And he didn't actually want to talk about all this. He'd never be an yeah. egomaniac like fucking David Wilcock. And then that's it. Then I'll fucking okay punch him in the throat. <laughs> That, that's a good plan. I like it. You <laughs> prophesized it, in fact. That Look at that. Be. I know. <laughs> in the making, You're going to get him going up the stairs, <laughs> <just> right? <laughs> that's my best way to get people, by the way. Okay, you guys have heard the prophecy here. We got a reporting. We're going to edit it, in fact, just to make it even more factual. <laughs> yeah. 190 IQ right here. Not yeah. to brag or anything, but uh, 190. I know everything anyone's ever said to me in every book I've ever read. <laughs> I sat on them. Yeah. I sit on them. <laughs> so beginning in July of 1998 and ending in August of 2005, David conducted 500 paid personal readings as a full-time professional intuitive counselor. Shut up. Oh, David's first stab at a convergence volume was published on the Great Dreams website in the spring of 1998. What's the Great Dreams website? No idea. No okay. idea. Okay. And and Fair David's enough. own website, Ascension 2000, came online in February of 1999. And maybe the greatest bracket, no content has ever been deleted from this website since its inception. <laughs> though we did change the name. <laughs> The first complete volume of Convergence was posted on March 8, 1999 on Wilcox's 26th birthday. The second volume was completed in late 2000. The first volume largely rewritten in 2001 and the third and most important volume, Divine Cosmos, in April of 2002. The reincarnation of Edgar Cayce with the question mark finally hit bookstores nationwide in 2004. Oh I have God. no idea why he says finally. Well, this is the first reference to the book in any way. Not only that, that's his first book, is it not? His first one that actually got released. Like got the other ones were like him. free online books. Okay. Though most of David's work on the book was completed in 2003, again, there are two authors, but... The book was edited through at least three different passes by David, though he did not suppress any material that may have cast him in an unfavorable light, only striving to increase readability and round out the supporting data. He put that? He put that. Oh, for fuck's sakes. This guy. Reincarnation, which is apparently what he calls it for short, <laughs> became <laughs> the, the third mark. best-selling book in the entire Frog Books catalog though consistently left in a foul smelling cloud of dust by Walter the farting dog. I have no idea what that means. It's Walter the farting dog. <laughs> this is the greatest bio mess. Hold up, Walter the farting dog. While you do that, I just gotta get a drink. Oh like, yes, please do. Yeah. Is, oh my god, this is awful. Is it a thing? It's a thing. And he has lots of gas coming out of his butt. <laughs> a dog literally with gas coming out of his ass, like right out. <laughs> I don't I don't understand it. Though consistently left in a foul smelling cloud of dust by fa Walter the farting dog. I don't get it. I don't get that either. <laughs> okay. Is he trying to be funny? Yeah, yeah, he is, but like I, don't, I just don't get it. I don't get the reference. Does he know Walter? 
did Walter review the book? Did he write Walter the Farting Dog? Must have a connection to it somewhere. Let's keep going. David moved to Louisville, Kentucky in February of 2003 to join forces with Jim and Carla, much like the mighty Edgar Cayce, leaving Virginia Beach. The two surviving members of the Law of One contact. He never left Virginia Beach. Oh, Edgar, or uh, David did. David did. Edgar didn't. Edgar didn't, no. Okay. He was soon followed by fellow members of Vara in March and Gary in late April. David reliably paid $601 monthly rent, shopped for the group's food on Friday night, and cooked the group's food for the entire week all Saturday. Again, this is his bio. Who are these people? (laughs) Who are they? bracket with fellow member Vara who also did all the bookkeeping close bracket okay still doesn't explain who the fuck Vara is David also regularly performed a variety of skilled labor tasks this is an absolute favorite part of his bio this is like why did you include this David also regularly performed a variety of skilled labor tasks including a complete remodeling of the basements <laughs> Creating three new bedrooms and a large laundry room under the direction and partnership of a fellow LL member, Bruce, also known as Lone Bear, who moved in as of December. Gary also provided assistance in construction. (laughs) It continues. Who are these people? Why do we need to know about them? And is this a resume? He's just talking about, like, what he can do. Well, he's done too much. It's a CV. (laughs) Oh, my God. It is a CV. Holy shit. I can't even wrap my head around. I would never hire this guy. (laughs) The remodeling process proved to be the most grueling physical labor David would ever perform. (laughs) The guy remodeled the basement. He literally worked. From the time he woke up to the time he went to bed, every day, stopping only to take paid clients, cook group food all day Saturdays, and attend group meetings on Sunday. Okay. He began eating, this is the first reference to it, he began eating regular animal protein again to support his physical body's muscular exertion and discovered that his particular blood type really benefited from it. Thus, he allowed limited types of organic meat back after a seven-year stint of severely disciplined vegan dieting. Wait, wait one second here, because it's in brackets. (laughs) Sorry to our dedicated vegetarians out there. Some people can do it and some can't. He goes from talking about a vegan diet to sorry vegetarians. I love that we could totally cut out this whole part of his bio with no, like... Nothing's lost. <laughs> there's no impact, but at the same time, it's There's no way in hell. Why there's the fuck no... is it there? <laughs> From Walter the Farting Dog to fucking Lone Bear, like, what the fucking difference does this make? <laughs> to the hardest work of his entire life, which is putting up some drywall. <laughs> makes no impact to what I know about David Wilcox. I think. I think. I don't know that for sure. It, it builds his character. It builds his character. <laughs> okay. Glad Much like did. the hard work he did in renovating that basement. <laughs> it seems tough. <laughs> now, during this time, the Reincarnation book came out. 
And during a short break, David also produced his first reading on CD, complete with his own ambient electronic background music entitled, What Is My Purpose? Did he do the music? Oh, he did the music. It's compact disc, right? Yeah, compact disc. He focused on all that. Again, like, he went into super detail, where, like, it's not necessary at all. And then, like, out of nowhere, and by the way, I had to give up being a vegan. And by the way, that's when my next book came out on CD. And then, like, he focuses on the weirdest fucking stuff. Like, right now, David was tasked by Richard C. Hoagland to upgrade his interplanetary climate change research to a whole new level. And this necessitated a relieving end to the basement labor by the beginning of April. Oh my god, ew. We went from him posting in 96 on Richard Hoagland's forums to he's doing research for Richard Hoagland. Or sorry, he's being directed on research by Richard Hoagland. This is still, I had a feeling that he was something with Richard Hoagland. This is still on his current website, right? Oh yeah. He didn't feel the need to upgrade that to, he relocated from Virginia Beach to Louisville, Kentucky, in which he worked on this research that Richard Hoagland told him to, but he yet has to go into this whole- Even how the relationship budded. Also, uh, I, I use that word intentionally because I get a lot of Blavatsky feel from this guy. Yeah. Blavatsky plays a huge role in everyone's life. Well, and yeah, Edgar Casey was taken in by Blavatsky a little bit. Not not him per se, but it came up. So yeah, yeah. there we have Listen it. Listen to the episode if you're confused. Yeah, I get that too as well, actually. And that was a great- And also it should be very important right now that I say this, Richard Hoagland, has no formal training of any science, like at all. He finished high school. That's Richard Hoagland's background. Yeah. And he is directing David Wilcox's research into interplanetary climate change and the best resources to use. And it comes up right now, David relies heavily on Russian scientists for this research. Doesn't speak a lick of Russian. Or sorry, he might, but he didn't find it important to fucking say in this damn biopic. The bio, I'm finding it so strange, the things he's focusing on and not focusing on and adding in brackets about shit. But continue, continue, please. I'm intrigued to hear more about this. Up until the Hoagland Initiative, David had relied heavily on the work of a Russian Dr. Oleski Dmitriev. His study to argue that our entire solar system was rapidly becoming brighter, hotter, and more energetic. Hoagland insisted that all Russian data needed to be thrown out for the purposes of skeptical Western scientists. <laughs> and every point needed to be argued from a direct NASA study. And like, really, what I just told you about Richard Hoagland, he is not in any way like formally educated and he's like dude stop fucking relying on russian scientists they are not adding anything <laughs> look for actual studies <laughs> you don't speak russian oh he, richard hoagland's like the true hero first calling him out yeah somehow yeah I wouldn't call Richard Holding a, a hero by any means, except when it comes to this. And as soon as he was told that, David generated well over a foot of new internet research books. <laughs> internet research books is what he described it as in just a few months as a result of this inspiration, which led to the 2004 Interplanetary Day After Tomorrow question mark article series on Richard's website, enterprisemission.com, and an appearance on Art Bell's show with Richard 
followed by an appearance on the Bay Area UFO Expo later that same year. Before leaving for the conference, David had dreams equating the career breakthrough with winning a gold medal in the Olympics. This is such a good story. And on the way home, he found himself on the same flight with a local Olympic gold medalist from Kentucky. And what? Who showed her gold and silver medals off to the crowd. Oh, it wasn't him. David luckily had his camcorder with a blank tape in it and filmed the whole thing as he felt this was one the only way people would believe such a staggering synchronicity. Nice try, David Wilcock. David moved out in October of 2004 to get much needed time and privacy to focus on his own work. I thought that's why they built the rooms in the basement for privacy. Yeah, what the fuck was he breaking his back for and complaining about? I just hope he got paid for it. Maybe got a builder's lean on in there. Anyhow, while still providing crucial assistance for developing <laughs> LLs and rustic property Avalon, which was a real passion for both Bruce and Vara. I just need to say this now. LLs is capital L slash capital L apostrophe S. And I have no idea what that fucking means. Okay, are you serious? And like, who is these people? Yeah. Okay, continue. Just have to say it again. It was intended to become a sustainable organic farm, totally off the power grid and possible conference center. David provided farm labor, including the completion of a large utility shed on the Avalon site and complimentary housing for Avalon project director, Bruce Lone Bear for an entire <laughs> year. David's three bedroom Milton home was 3.1 miles from the Avalon site itself and equally short distance from Madison, Indiana. No idea why you put that. I feel like he's trying to say that he put something into it. He probably never got recognition or something. But the way he is with his ego, I feel like it's in there for a reason. Like he's bitter maybe about something. Yeah, that's fair. But Chelsea, this is the moment you've been waiting for right here. Oh, good. Oh, what is it? Well, hey there. We got to stop running into each other like this. This is Taylor, the editor of Journey to the Fringe, not to be confused with the podcast host. Now, we have once again underestimated how much we truly recorded in this long broadcast. So I once again have to make a cut here for dramatic effect. We will see you next week with the dramatic conclusion, maybe, of this episode. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh